in the 1980s, for those of you that were around then, in the 1980s, there were a couple of very memorable where's the blank lines. Some of you may remember. For example, you may remember the little old lady in the Wendy's commercial, where's the beef, right? 1980s. Some of you may remember the where's Waldo craze of the 80s before that went downhill. This morning, as we talk about reaching out to people, as we talk about reaching out and teaching others about the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptural process of how to be saved, we're going to utilize that same line in a sermon entitled, Where's the Prayer? Where's the prayer? In fact, it was the mid-1980s as well, 1985 to be exact, when I had to come face to face with that question, where's the prayer? Because I had been taught, as so many millions of souls are, and have been for quite a while now, that all you need to do to be saved is say a prayer and welcome Jesus into your heart. I had been taught that. I believed it. And so I had to come face to face with looking through the Bible and thinking, where's the prayer? Now, while most of us know the answer to that question, where's the prayer, it ain't there, most people actually don't know where it was that it was originally found and where it did actually come from. And that's something that we're going to cover during the less familiar to most folks conclusion of this sermon. However, I'd like for us to begin with a much more familiar idea. Where's the prayer? Turn to me in your Bibles this morning, the book of Acts chapter 2, even if you can quote the entire chapter. Acts chapter 2. By the way, if you can quote the entire chapter, you're better at it than I am because I can't. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. He includes his sermon by saying in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Watch for the key words. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Last sentence of verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, we see that they heard the gospel 
We know that they heard it in verses 22 through 36, and I didn't read the whole chapter because we wouldn't have time enough to do the lesson. But they heard the gospel preached very clearly, very plainly in verses 22 through 36. They apparently believed in verse 37 because they were cut to the heart by the message. They said, what are we gonna do about this? So we know that they believed. We know that they were told that they needed to repent. That is, turn to God. And they did turn to God and they did change their lives. Verses 37 through 47, we see that right there. And 3,000 people, just as we read, were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and they were thus saved and added by God to his son's church at that point according to the verses we read, verses 38, 39, 40, 41, and 47. That's what it says. But where's the prayer? Where's the prayer? It ain't there. In the text, it is undeniable that we see 3,000 people saved that very day. It's, it's inarguable. There it is. And yet, without a single one of those people, without one, being told to or saying the sinner's prayer. No, not one. It is simply not there, not anywhere. If I sound a little like Dr. Seuss this morning, forgive me, I spent the day with my granddaughter yesterday, okay? But because not every example of conversion contains every element of conversion, let's, let's try the next one. Let's see what's in that one. If we were to read Acts chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4 and verse 4, 312 through 4, 4, we would see that in verses 12 through 26, they heard the gospel. They heard it. We would see that they were then further taught by the apostle Peter that they needed to repent and be converted verse 19, if their sins were to be blotted out, if their sins were to be forgiven, verse 19. We would additionally see that they believed the word that they had been taught according to chapter four and verse four. They believed it. Boy, did they believe it. We'd also note from chapter four and verse four that another several thousand had been saved and added to the previous number of saved folks. By the end of verse four in chapter four, there's another several thousand people who've been saved. But where's the prayer? It ain't there. In that text, we see several thousand more people had been saved, converted to Christ, and added to the church by this time but not one single solitary soul amongst them, nowhere, not one, not one, do we see being told to or saying the sinner's prayer. And when I talk about the sinner's prayer, I mean that prayer, you know, uh, that we're told sometimes to say, you know, Lord Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner, come into my heart and save me, welcoming the Lord into their heart, that sort of thing. That's what I mean just so that we're clear when I say sinner's prayer for salvation. That's what I'm talking about. But, but they're not taught that. Nowhere do we see that anywhere in the book. Despite the fact that we've now got thousands saved, thousands, and added to the church by this point. 
Let's try the next one. Look with me, if you will, in Acts 8. And again, we'll only read a few verses. Don't have time to read the whole chapter. If you question any of this, I, I beseech you to go home and, and to read through this. But let us just read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8. Acts 8, verses 5 and 6. Reads as follows. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look down at verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. He goes down, he preaches, they heed these things, they hear them, they listen to them, and when they hear them, they're baptized. Hmm. Now some may say, now, now wait a minute, well, slow down, Doug. Or they may say it to you when you try to, to show people this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It doesn't say they were saved anywhere in that passage. The word saved does not occur in that passage. You know what? You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. The word saved does not occur in that passage. That is correct. It doesn't have to say they were saved. You know why? Because of what it does say. It doesn't have to say they were saved because of what it does say. It does say in verse 12, let me read verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. I know I've read that twice. What does it say? It does say in verse 12 they believed. Is that correct? It is correct. I've read it twice now. And it does say they were baptized, right? They believed and they were baptized. But it doesn't say they were saved. It doesn't have to because it says they, were, they believed and were baptized. Because what did Jesus say about those who would believe and be baptized? What did Jesus say in Mark 16, 15, and 16? He said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Verse 12, they believed and were baptized. Hence, they had to have been saved at that point, according to Jesus, or else Jesus Christ had no idea what he was talking about. And if you want to tell him that on Judgment Day, that's on you. I'm not doing it. He said those who would believe and be baptized, and they were, so we know they were saved. And also, please notice what Jesus did not say in Mark 16, 15, and 16. He did not say, when all the world preach gospel to all creation, he who believes shall be saved and should be baptized. That's not what he said. He said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. We would also note, in light of the fact that verse 12 of Acts 8, and what it says, we would note what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.21, where the Apostle Peter wrote, by divine inspiration, baptism doth now save you. But again, straying here a little bit from my main point. Whether it's Jesus' instructions in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, or whether it's what the Holy Spirit divinely inspired the Apostle Peter to say in Acts 2.38 or write in 1 Peter 3.21, or the multiple examples of conversion we see with the Samaritans here in Acts 12, the question's the same in all of those things. Where's the prayer? It ain't there. It ain't there anywhere. Hmm. 
Well, that begs the question. Didn't Jesus know? Do you think Jesus knew what God's plan entailed to be saved? You think Jesus knew what God's command were to be saved, do you? Mm -hmm. Do you suppose the apostle Peter knew as he preached the first few gospel sermons in Acts chapters two through four? You suppose Peter had any clue what God's requirements for salvation were? Well, sure. Do you suppose he know, knew when he, when he went to Cornelius in Acts 10? Do you suppose that the Apostle Peter had any idea when he wrote 1 Peter 3.21 what God's commandments for salvation truly were? Sure. Do you suppose Philip the evangelist knew what God's plan to save lost sinners included when he preached to them here in Acts chapter 8? Do you think Philip knew? Sure he did. Because these people believed and were baptized and Jesus said that anybody that did that would be saved. And yet, neither Peter, nor Philip, nor Jesus said, say this prayer, welcome Jesus into your heart, anywhere that we've seen thus far. But that's okay, we need to be thorough. Where's the prayer? You know what? In the next example of conversion, we're going to see prayer. We are. We're going to see a lot of prayer, actually, at least hinted at. We're finally going to see a lot of prayer. We're also going to see not only prayer, but we're going to see Jesus confessed as Lord. And we're going to see somebody believing in their heart. We're going to see all three of them. Finally. Yet what we're going to see with all three of them is that those three things working in conjunction were not enough to save. They weren't. They weren't. Conversion of Saul of Tarsus is recorded in three different chapters in the Bible. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9 and then Paul the Apostle retells his story later on in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. And so if you're taking notes, the easiest way we're going to do this rather than read three chapters is just to say this. We see in Acts chapter 9 verses 5 through 8 that Saul of Tarsus called Jesus Lord. He called him Lord. It's right there in the text. He also believed in his heart that Jesus was Lord. How do we know that? Because he obeyed Jesus. When Jesus said, go into Damascus, and it will be told, all you must do to you. Saul didn't argue with him. He went. He believed that he was Lord, and he obeyed him. But we also know that even though he called him Lord in that text, and he obeyed him, as Lord and believed he was Lord, that Saul wasn't saved at that point because not one, not two, but three days later, Saul of Tarsus still has his sins on him. On him. He couldn't have been saved when he went into Damascus because three days later he's still covered with his sins. You can't go to heaven with your sins on you, so we know that just calling him Lord and believing in the heart and stopping there didn't get him saved. We know that it appears as well from Acts 9, verses 9 through 11, that Saul of Tarsus spent the better part of three days praying. Praying. Matter of fact, so fervently devoted was he to his prayer and meditation that for three days he went without food and drink. That's what the text says, Acts chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. But we also know 
that even three days of intense devotion and consideration and prayer wasn't enough to save him. He still wasn't saved. We know that prayer was there, but he still wasn't saved. How do we know that? Because we know that three days after he went into Damascus that Ananias comes to him in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as it is reported, and he says to Saul of Tarsus, and, and now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Three days later, he still got his sins. The prayer didn't save him. It wasn't so-called sinner's prayer either. We'll prove that in a few minutes. But that prayer didn't save him. Belief didn't save him. Confession, those three things alone, even working together, Still didn't get rid of his sins. He still had to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In Acts 22 and verse 16, as he tells the story, was he saved at that point, I wonder? Was he saved? No, I don't actually wonder. Because I know he believed what Jesus said to him. I know he arose and was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. And again, what did Jesus say about those who believe and are baptized? In Mark 16, 16, he said they'll be saved. So I know. Saul was saved, unless Jesus had no idea what he was talking about, and I don't believe that. But again, as we read through those three chapters wherein we see Saul of Tarsus converted, converted to Christ and saved, we never see him being told to say a prayer to welcome Jesus into his heart. Where is that prayer? Where is that prayer? It's not there. And yet, he was saved. We know he was saved, according to his own words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. We know he was saved. But he was saved without saying the so-called sinner's prayer. Why don't you think about this? We've seen thousands and thousands of souls converted to Christ by this point in the book of Acts, and yet not one was ever told to say a prayer to do it. They, they got saved without the sinner's prayer. <laughs> kind of reminds me of a story somebody sent me from BabylonB.com dated August the 16th of 2016, the following little story. Wilson, North Carolina. After purchasing a defective Bible that seemed to omit the sinner's prayer, local woman Gail Dunsby reportedly returned the incomplete book to her local Lifeway Christian store for a full refund Tuesday. It was really strange, Dunsby told reporters gathered outside the Christian bookstore after she had received back her $36.99 plus tax in full. I searched that Bible through and through and couldn't find anything about a magic prayer I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them be forever more secure in their eternal salvation no matter what their li life looks like afterwards. She said, I just couldn't find it. Bible must be defective. A Lifeway representative confirmed that the misprint may be part of a widespread issue. <laughs> you think? I'm sorry. After more associates were unable to locate a suitable replacement Bible for Dunsby, as none of the Bibles on their shelves seemed to contain the sinner's prayer either. What about our next example that we see in the Bible? What about Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Acts 10? In, in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, uh, we are told about Cornelius that he was a devout man, Acts 10, 2, one who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. He was a very religious man. But you know what? Despite his constant giving, his constant devotion, and his constant prayers, 
Don't miss this. He was a good man. He led his family well. He, he gave liberally. He prayed to God always. This was a good guy. But despite all his goodness, there was still one thing. There was something that he lacked, verse 6 of Acts 10, that God said he must do that he hadn't done yet. He must. That's what the scripture says. Look, look, look with me in that verse. I don't have it marked to read, but we're going to anyway. Acts 10 and verse 6. He's to send for Peter, who was lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. There was something Cornelius still must do, and he didn't know what it was despite all the good he had done. But he said, God told him, Peter will tell you what this. Was it, was it to say the sinner's prayer and welcome Jesus into his heart so he could be saved? Well, let's take a look, shall we? In verses 34 through 43, Cornelius and his household heard the gospel. In verses 44 through 46, they received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. But, watch this, watch this close. Look in your Bibles. Don't watch me, look in your Bibles. You can listen to me looking in your Bibles. Despite Cornelius' constant devotion, his liberal giving, his continual prayers, and even receiving the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, even after all that, see that the Apostle Peter still, verse 48, commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. This was what God had sent the Apostle Peter to tell them that they must do. Now granted, Peter told them what Jesus had done for them, yes. But remember when Peter was being sent, he was going to tell Cornelius what he must do. So Cornelius is told what Jesus had done for them, but then they are commanded to be baptized. This they still had to do, but, but why? Here, and here's the, here's the key on this. Here's the key. Why? Why such a good man as Cornelius, why does he need baptism? I'll tell you why he needs baptism. Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't care how good a person is. When you reach the accountable age and you sin once, you need that sin washed away. That sin's on your record. There's nothing you can do about it. Something's going to have to be done to get rid of that. You can't go to heaven. One sin got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. One sin got, got Moses so that he couldn't go to the promised land. One sin is all it takes. And once you commit that, there's nothing you can do with it. It's on the record. Cornelius was a good guy. Religious, devoted, but he had still sinned. And Peter had already preached in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 as we read that, that baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. And so Cornelius and his household needed to be baptized to have their sins forgiven. But some will say, wait a minute, it doesn't specifically say in that text that they were saved. And again, it doesn't have to because they believed they were baptized. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. We've been over this. But the question is, where's the prayer? Where's the prayer? We know he was saved. Where's the prayer? It ain't there. Do you believe that the Apostle Peter really and truly knew what God required for salvation? Do you? And yet, prayer's not there. 
but yet we know he was saved. Let's, let's look at the next one. What about the conversion of Lydia in Acts chapter 16? And I know that all of you in the church know these, and I know you've been through them, but, but I'm putting it in a framework for a reason. We've we got we to get used to just, just simply, where, where's the prayer? Where? where? The conversion of Lydia is recorded in Acts chapter 16. And, and we'll just look at verses 14 and 15. Look what it does say. Look what it doesn't say. Verses 14 and 15. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed. Keep that word in mind. Heed. The things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. And again, we see that she heard. She heard the message, and she believed the message of Paul, verse 14. And we see that she was baptized in verse 15. And again, while the Bible doesn't specifically say that she was saved in that text, the whole point of it is Jesus said if they believed and were baptized, she believed and was baptized, they'd be saved. And a matter of fact, she says to the Apostle Paul, you consider me faithful. She was saved. Hmm. But where's the prayer? It ain't there. Not anywhere. And yet she was saved. Finally, jailer and his household in Acts chapter 16. We know that Paul and Silas were singing psalms and hymns of praise at midnight, verse 25. We know there's a great earthquake. We know that the, uh, Paul, uh, the jailer comes in before Paul and Silas gets in there and then we would read the following from Acts chapter 16 starting at verse 30. It says this, he brought them out, that is the jailer, brought Paul and Silas out and he says, sirs, what must I do? What do I got to do? There's something, I, I know I got to do something, what must I do? What must I do? It's a must to be saved. So he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. Right now he doesn't know what to believe. Question's been answered, but he hasn't been told. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Notice in verse 30, the jailer wanted to know what he must do to be saved. Verse 31, we see that he was told that he had to believe on Jesus. Verse 32, we see that Paul and Silas then went on to teach the jailer and his household exactly what it was that they needed to believe about Jesus in order to be saved. We see that, it's right there. And in verses 33 and 4, we see that part of what they were taught by Paul and Silas was not only what Jesus had done for them, but what they must do in order to take advantage of what he had done for them, and hence he and his family were baptized. We see they believed that was what they needed to do. They believed in Jesus. They believed what they'd been told because they did it, and they were saved. But where's the prayer? It ain't there. We have now covered thousands and thousands of conversions in the book of Acts, people that were legitimately, honestly, see it right there in the text, saved. 
We have all of these examples that we have been given and that we have looked at in God's word. Examples of conversion where an alien sinners were taught what they must do to be saved and they did it. They were taught what they must do to take advantage of what Jesus had done for them. They were told these things by such first century preachers. Listen to this list. I know you've had some incredibly powerful preachers around here, but let me tell you what. Listen to the list of preachers who told these messages. Stop and think about these men. The Apostle Peter, the Evangelist Philip, Ananias, the Apostle Paul, Silas. That's the level of teachers and preachers that have told these guys what they need to do to be saved. And we, we've seen what they needed to do to be saved, to hear and, and hear the gospel, to believe the gospel. We, we've seen that. They need to confess Jesus as Lord, repent of their sins, and be baptized. We, we've seen that that was the message. But the one thing we have never seen, ever, is a person saying a prayer and welcoming Jesus into their heart. We've never seen that. It's not in the text. Those men never taught that. So where'd it come from? Well, let's talk about that. As we move through history and time, we get up to the end of the first century, up to the completion of the Bible, and the Apostle John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Gospel of John, and the Revelation, around 100 AD, give or take five years, Apostle John died. The last apostle. Yet, no sinner's prayer seen anywhere to save anybody at this point. So we keep moving. We keep moving through history. In 312 AD, 200 years later, 312 AD, Constantine was recognized by the Roman Senate as emperor, 312. In 313, Constantine issued an edict which granted Christianity or granted toleration to Christianity. And, and Constantine, between then and his own death in 337, basically laid the groundwork for and instituted the Roman Catholic Church. This is several hundred years after the last apostle died, and yet as we read about this, we see no prayer of faith even in existence even then. We don't see it in the fourth century, fifth century, sixth century, don't see it by the year 1,000, a millennia has gone by. We still don't see any prayer of faith, and yet people were obviously being saved by the gospel, and yet we can probe through history and not see a prayer of faith saving anybody. 1,100, 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 A.D. still, millennia and a half later, we don't see it. Still no prayer of faith. You've got to go all the way up to the 16th century, around 15, catch this, can a lot happen in 1,500 years? Can you imagine what this world's going to look like in 1,500 years with the technology we have today, right? You've got to go 1,500 years or so after the Lord's church was established, after everything was laid out a person had to do to be saved, you have got to go all the way up to the year 1517 to even begin to see the glimmerings of a little bit of a, just a tiny shadow perhaps of the beginnings of the embryo of the prayer of faith. It was 1517 when German monk Martin Luther posted for debate a series of theses which challenged the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther believed 
taught amongst other things, more of a faith-only type of salvation, despite the fact that James 2 and verse 24 in God's word tells us from 1,500 years or so, 1,400 years or so earlier, that, that a man is not saved by faith only. But Martin Luther taught more of a faith-only type salvation. However, even with Martin Luther, we don't see the prayer of faith yet. It's just, it, it's non-existent in history yet. 20 years, less than 20 years later, in 1534, King Henry VIII broke ties with the Catholic Church over his own desires, which the Catholic Church would not approve. Catholic Church wouldn't approve what King Henry wanted to do, so he broke away from them, formed his own church. Officially deemed the Church of England later to become the Episcopal Church. However, as we read about their history, we still don't see the sinner's prayer anywhere. Two years later in 1536, John Calvin, who had also broken away from Catholicism, issued these writings called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which stated his beliefs, stated the way he saw it, his theology. And these things, when he, when he put them out there, the Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536, for the next 25 years, they were relentlessly updated and revised. Do you know what? Prayer of faith ain't in them. Still don't see it. Hmm. In 1550, the Congregational Church was established in England by Robert Brown. In 1607, we still don't see the sinner's prayer. 1607, folks! That's when the Baptist Church was established in Holland by John Smith. But even then, we do not see the sinner's prayer as official church doctrine in even the Baptist Church, which was started in 1607. We don't see the sinner's prayer as official church doctrine in any of these man-made churches, whether it's Henry VIII or, or any of these others. It's still not even in existence. You have got to go all the way up to 1643. All the way up to over 16 centuries after the Lord's church was established, wherein God's commandments for one to be saved had been taught, had been obeyed by everybody who trusted him and wanted to have their sins washed away God's way, that one must hear and believe and confess and repent and be baptized. That had been being taught as the way to salvation way back in the first century and over 16 centuries later, in 1643, At the request of the English Parliament, the Westminster Assembly was convened at the famed Westminster Abbey, the British Coronation Church building dating back to 1220. In 1643, there in London, England, it was requested that an assembly be convened of so-called divines, that is, church leaders, and some laity, that is regular members, its purpose was to bring the Church of England into line with Calvinist theology. That's why I went through all those churches. Did you get that? King Henry's, King Henry's Church of England that he had established wasn't in line with Calvin and there was a lot of, there was a lot of, of, of fighting and, and nobody was, so, so the English Parliament convened this meeting and said, look, we got to get the Church of England, we got to get them on board with what Calvin taught and this faith only, somehow we got to make this all mesh and, and, and settle the disputes and, and make it okay. 
ongoing for six years from 1643 until 1649, the Westminster Assembly produced standards that have continued to be foundational for Protestant denominations to this day. Its most famous of doctrinal pronouncements was the Westminster Confession of Faith. This sinner's prayer of faith for salvation is obviously not found in any New Testament example of conversion to Christ in the Word of God, was never taught by Christ, his apostles, or his church, and yet the Westminster Confession is the foundation upon which all of the official statements of belief issued as standards of doctrine during the 17th and 18th centuries were based. Did you catch that? I know I, I read that was a lot, but listen. It was in Westminster Abbey. That's why it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Look it up, Google it. Westminster Confession. These six years of these mean, this meeting of these people, these leaders and these, these regular folks were trying to bring Calvin and the Church of England into, into some sort of agreement, you know, sort of like Congress, trying to, to, to compromise and take some of this and some of that. And, make, and, and out of that whole six-year assembly, what came out was the sinner's prayer. They said, this is how we can solve it all. We'll just say a prayer and be saved. That's where it came from, 1643 to 1649, London, England. That's where the prayer of faith came from. It's not in the Bible. It's a man-made agreement, compromise, to bring two man-made churches or two man-made concepts together. Today's confession or prayers of faith are just a melting pot of all of these older ones. Originating from this meeting some 1,600 years after Christ, through Peter told us undeniably what God required for becoming a part of his church. Acts 2. Verses 38 and following. There you have it. Answered a question, didn't we? We finally found the prayer of faith. We know where it's located. We know where it came from. We got it now. Where's the prayer? It's right there, 1643 to 1649, coming out of London, England. And so the question which every soul since then, every soul within the sound of my voice and beyond, the question that everybody must decide is really simple and be very, very careful to understand that your eternal soul depends on your answer to this question. Here's the question. Whom and their teachings do you trust more to save your eternal soul? Whom and their teachings do you trust more to save your eternal soul? Jesus and his hand-picked apostles and messengers and the instructions they gave in order for one to be saved? Hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, confessing Jesus as Lord, repenting of sins, and being baptized? Do you trust Jesus and his hand-picked messengers from the first century more? Or do you trust more mere mortal men like John Calvin, King Henry VIII, 
and their contemporaries and the leaders and laity of the churches that some of them had established who met in London. Some 1,600 years later. And the teaching they came up with at that meeting to save your eternal soul. That's the question everybody's got to answer. Everybody. That's it. It's that simple. It's no more complicated than that. Who do you trust? If it's that latter group that met in London, if that's who you trust and you trust the prayer of faith that came out of that meeting to save your soul, then I am begging you. Get a copy of this lesson and you go through it verse by verse, word by word. You go home and you do the research on it, prayer. You look it up everywhere you can find it. You look up Westminster Confession. You come, if, if you're going to say, I trust the prayer and I know I was saved when I said that prayer, I beg you to look up where that prayer came from because we found it. Or at least, at least, sit down with me or somebody else here who's a member of the church and let's just look again through God's word and see what it says. We're not trying to put words in God's mouth. That's why I took the time to read those texts. We want everybody to go to heaven. But men can't take you there. And so I beg you, if you believe it's that latter group and you have more faith in King Henry and John Calvin in the prayer they came up with than what Jesus said and what the apostles taught in the first century, please. But if on the other hand this morning, you found the prayer like I couldn't do, as it were. If you truly believe and trust and have faith that Jesus Christ knew what he was talking about. That Jesus Christ and Peter and Paul and, and Philip and Ananias, if you believe that they knew what they were talking about when they said you had to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you believe Jesus is Lord, you want to do what they commanded because you absolutely trust what God said through them and had written in this book more than you want to trust something that came out of England 1,600 years later? Then I will close with this and say to you the same thing Saul of Tarsus had said to him. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. And now, why do you delay? Arise. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. If you trust Jesus, let's do that right now, shall we, as we stand and as we sing.